Hey, everybody. Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. My name is Trevor. I'm here with Mark. How are you feeling today, Mark? I feel like having a seltzer, probably. So I will. Whoa. How are you feeling? Seltzer during the pot. Well, I feel fine. Then I feel like having a tea uh, because that's what I'm having. I'm a little bit congested. I don't know if anyone can tell from my voice. So I feel like having a tea. Nice. Tea is very functional. I'm, I'm drinking a tea tea with lemon right now, so I should be swiftly in recovery. Nice. Seltzer uh, is cool because you can kind of trick yourself into thinking you're like having a beer almost. A beer or a soda or well, something. Yeah, tip. Yeah, I feel like seltzer, you kind of, I feel like you maybe switch into it like at an older age, like younger, you're like soda and like blah, blah, and whatever. And then this, and then eventually it's like, yeah, seltzer, it's like, doesn't taste like syrup sludge. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I actually, uh, that's one small, really random minor bragging point of having lived abroad for a little while is like the. English and therefore by extension the European seltzer game is like way beyond America. Do they call it the same thing? No, they call they don't really call it seltzer. They wouldn't know what you were talking about. They would tell they would call it um, fizz. Well, also like what was re like really weird in restaurants and stuff is they'll ask you um, you know, tap water or do you want it with gas? Hmm. So like, cause it's like, you know, the CO2 is like in the water. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, they don't really call it seltzer. Um, but yeah, it was sick over there. Lots of different varieties, right. lots of like crazy ones. Also, well, there's a type of seltzer here in LA called Topo Chico, which is like amazing, but it's only available in like the South and West. <laughs> so the world of seltzers. Yeah. Um, so here we are. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 36. And uh, what we're talking about today, me and Mark have a little intro conversation. I'm going to call it uh, books that I've canceled. I don't like the cancel culture. I'll put that out there first as a uh, as a talking point. But also, me and Mark have brought a list of books that are the books that we've given the ultimate insult, which is basically that we began reading them and then consciously stopped reading them. Would you say that's the ultimate insult, Mark? Yeah, I think there's there's further to go, which I mean, I'll there, there are more steps beyond that, which I'll cover in one of mine. But um, yes, there are definitely more. I mean, I guess I may maybe the next step is logging on to a forum and like flaming the author on the Internet or giving a one star review or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um. <clears throat> But yeah, I mean, basically, that's what I kind of coined it in my head, that these are the books that I've canceled on, that I was completely just done with. I, at some point in the book, I just said no. Or another book, or like some of these books, I also just, it kind of like just drifted away from me. So, um, Mark, why don't you start us off and give us your first book that you've canceled? All right. My, mine are weird because I uh, actually... Most of my list is authors that I actually like, but it's like books I just yeah I've didn't. got a few I got a few of those too I got a few of those. Yeah. It was hard when I was trying to like I just <laughs> whenever we do one of these games I go and like I have to like scan my entire bookshelf or like go to different rooms and like <laughs> right wherever I have them in like storage and shit and be like uh did these fit you know the topic of the week or whatever but uh, so the first first one I've got is uh, Cancer Ward by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the okay. Russian author. 
and this one i i put it down because it was just too sad and too like dark wow <laughs> So there's lots of different reasons why you. So might not necessarily drop. bad writing, or you weren't like disappointed with the book. You were just like, I can't take this right now. <laughs> yeah, I think I approached this from a bunch of different angles, but so I I think I bought this one online, like a really long time ago. Actually, uh, uh, I mean I saw all these amazing reviews for it. It was on a bunch of lists, you know. One, it was Nobel Prize in Literature, everything, you know. But reading it, reading it made me think of the uh, Thirty Rock bit uh when tracy jordan wins an oscar by making that super sad movie about his life called like hard to watch mm -hmm. where it's just dire uh you know circumstance after dire circumstance like and uh i, I forgot about that joke but it's called it was it was uh making fun of that book uh and movie precious like you know, based on the novel Push by Sapphire. I think that's what it was, but it was right. hard yep. to watch based on the novel Stone Cold Bummer by Manipulate. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I had to put it down. Um, I don't know if I'll ever be able to read it again, but I there's a similar book to it that I have read um, and, you know, kind of a similar setup, similar in that it was also Nobel Prize winning author and everything and that's uh the magic mountain by thomas mann and um found that one more tolerable so keep an eye out for that in future nice. episodes nice yeah i've heard of the magic mountain yeah yeah we got i've it. definitely heard of it uh my first one to talk about today is uh there's a really famous author have you ever heard of roberto bolano and you you might see he's one he's probably like if people are carrying around infinite jest as like a badge of honor, like, oh, I'm reading this big giant book, look at me, then I think Roberto Bolano's novel 2666 is also one of those books. Have you ever seen that that novel no, floating around? That's not ringing a bell. Um, well, <clears throat> today I'm not talking about 2666. I'm talking about uh, one of Roberto Bolano's other famous books, which is called The Savage Detectives. And I basically just stopped reading this book because it's the type of book like he's a good writer. It's obvious from like the very beginning, like I would get snippets of characters that I thought were really amazing, some great writing, you know, some good settings and stuff like that. But for me, it's really a triumph if you get me to kind of uh cover to cover a sort of story that's told in an anthology sort of way, you know, like jumping around. And like, basically the reason why I stopped reading the Savage Detectives is because I felt like no one had um, kind of sold it as that type of book where it's like stories within stories, like not really like one, there's like kind of consistent characters, but you have to pay close attention to them coming up again um, because he's a very kind of, he asks a lot of his readers in terms of, attention to detail and stuff like that. So just reading the Savage Detectives, I was like, wasn't really connected to any of the people who were coming in and out of the fragmented, like different stories. So I was just like, you know what? I'm done with this Savage Detectives, not getting a pass. <laughs> so that was my book, Roberto Bolano. Again, we're going to name some authors that we respect, but yeah, I just stopped reading and was like, I'm not interested. I'm done. <laughs> All right, I got another one here. Uh, 
author that I respect a lot. Um, Don DeLillo's Libra. Mm. Okay, Don DeLillo, famous for white noise among this podcast. So this one, you know, it's about Lee Harvey Oswald. And it was too kind of in-depth and too serious for me as far as the topic. Like, it just goes way and way deep into Oswald's like life, you know, going back in time, speculating on everything that was mm-hmm. leading, up, leading up to assassination of JFK. Um, I think I had just read, maybe around the same time, I had just read like, 11 63 by Stephen King. Right, you were uh, you were maxed out on JFK. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, when I say that, I'm like, it might have been the same year or something. Like, um, so I enjoyed that, and then you know, more recently for this podcast, I read uh, Replay by Ken Grimwood, which kind of had a little bit about mm-hmm. same sort of premise as King. You know, going back in time, right? Trying to stop the uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy and. I guess I could, you know, stomach or even enjoy those two, but this uh, DeLillo, you know, came in with this postmodern seriousness, which I just didn't, it just didn't catch me or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and let me ask yeah. you this, was Libra the third of that? Like, you're almost talking about like a little mini subgenre, you know, like going back and, you know, trying to affect, or or does Libra is not about going back in time. It's just about awful. No, it's just, it's just like speculative right. kind of fiction right. or you know historical okay. fiction sort. but was it the third one of those three that you were reading because uh, no it was like in between out. oh in between okay so yeah yeah, yeah. a real a, you really weren't interested <laughs> <laughs> but um you know i think uh you know Delilo, like is awesome you know white noise is one of my favorites uh i liked ratner's mm-hmm. star and underworld those are good mm-hmm. but it's funny in the edition so this specific edition i have by viking press uh, the cover is basically um, a novel like Libra, Don DeLillo, author of White Noise. Like, you know, it mentions, it's like, okay, I've got their attention, drew, drawing attention to my most famous book or whatever, White Noise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at the back cover, and the entire back cover is blurbs about White Noise, like five of them. Right. <laughs> nothing else. And so this is from, this book is from 1988. Like, you couldn't look up what it was about if you know you were in the bookstore at that time like with no info you'd literally have to open it up and read the book to figure out what it was and um i guess you would also i mean you could also figure it out if you happen to know what lee harvey oswald looked like because mm-hmm. um, there's a small picture on the cover but pretty much there's not any <laughs> context clues other than that um but yeah, I had to put it down. Put it down. Like 500 pages didn't want to deal with it. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes the length thing also gets into your head. Like for some books, it doesn't matter. But then a book, if you're slightly starting to not enjoy it and then you see the rest of the length, you're sort of like, no. Um, and that leads me to my next book, which is I think this is the this is the book that made me think of this game. This is the book that defines for me like the ultimate insult is, you know, stopping in the middle of a book and just throwing it across the room. Um, Atlas Shrugged by uh, by Ayn Rand. It's like I read The Fountainhead and thought I was cool in college. And like The Fountainhead is like sort of interesting. And then 
Atlas Shrugged comes along and kind of like defines her politics in like a more extreme way of, you know, like her, I don't I don't even know if you could call them like libertarian views or like what, but basically just Atlas Shrugged gets to a point that it just starts to become like very elitist and like, you know, I think also I had like matured enough to the point where I was reading more literature once I had like finally got to Atlas Shrugged and it just felt like I could hear the author's voice and politics like behind the (laughs) characters way more than I could hear like the characters. And yeah, I mean, basically Atlas Shrugged is about an elitist society who escapes into the mountains because they can't handle that. Like humanity has like other, you know, like basically she's just writing about like, you know, the right wing conservative utopia of being able to avoid everyone in like an ultimate society where there's only richness and like everyone's an asshole. Yeah. I went, uh, Um, I actually went down with the ship on that one. I've read all I've read, I read that one. Right. That's the only thing I've read by her. Uh, yeah. I read that whole book, though. I stopped reading kind of towards yeah. the end, too. <laughs> I was, like, invested. I was, like, probably, like, 500 pages in or something. But I don't know if you recall the point in the book when she's, like, in a plane, like, going towards, like, the secret, like, utopian island or mountain or whatever. And she's, like, pursuing this other plane. And I was like, this book is fucking dumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was lame. It, it was, like, uh, people that... I guess if I I'll probably forget a lot of points about it, but like people that come from, you know, generational wealth or whatever, and they want yeah. like this perfect, they yeah. want this perfect like meritocracy, but they, right. you know, and it's all like the main character. <laughs> there's kind of two main characters. There's like the man and the woman and the woman has like ultimate reverence for this man who has developed like the ultimate train track like he could like his train track is amazing but government regulation into like people's safety is like hampering his ultimate capitalist vision and she's like no this is you know we're gonna escape all the people who make rules about people not dying on railways and like that's her that's her (laughs) supposed utopia and it's all like mixed in with a lot of kind of very on the nose like she has like a lot there's like a lot of like love scenes where it's like i woke up in the morning with bruises and bites because hardcore sex is like forbidden but i'm gonna write about it because i'm awesome and stuff like that and it's like okay just shut the fuck up ayn rand (laughs) like atlas shrugged canceled nice all right the next one i got i can't remember can't remember which one it was if it's uh the corrections or freedom, but I can't really be bothered to remember which one it was, but some, one of those books by Jonathan Franzen, uh, hated it. You know, I don't remember how far I got into it. (laughs) It was just drenched in over, overly styled writing and the whole attitude just rubbed me the wrong way. Um, I could go off on this for a while. I think it was, I think it was the corrections that that was the one where it was chosen for the Oprah book club and he just you know made an ass out of himself being like you know too good for that um, <laughs> <laughs> it you know the integrity is gone after that stickers on it or some shit like that right and there's 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 so many other good stories of why he sucks though uh why I had to drop that book I read 
I did a little bit of research and uh, I read about this one time. I think he was he was going to try to like author some sort of journalistic piece where he was going to survive for a few weeks on an island or something like that. Some like Rob, Robinson Crusoe sort of thing. And then he lasted like all of one night or something, but still wrote some smug bullshit about it. Right. <laughs> like that doesn't seem real, but it it's, it's like he's trying to be irritating. Um, and my personal favorite here, I'll just, I'm just going to read the headline, which I definitely screen capped and sent to you probably five years ago now. Uh, here we go. Jonathan Franzen, quote, considered adopting Iraqi orphan to figure out young people. Novelist said the idea came to him as he felt he could not identify with cynical and angry younger generation, but he was persuaded against it by his editor. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, like I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, you like put a massive stopgap for me in front of Franzen because like, the basic journey, right, is like like you hear about this David Foster Wallace guy and this Infinite Jest, and you read that. And I actually have a friend who's reading Infinite Jest right now, and he's texting me about it literally right now. <laughs> and um, and you read that, and then like Franzen is like sort of tangentially related to the D the David Foster Wallace legacy. So it was always like, oh, you know, like these guys, like. You know, Franzen is next, and I think I mentioned on the podcast before, you told me, like, no, like, a big no on Franzen. I was like, okay. And literally, that put a gap in my reading of him for, the, like, a decade. Like, I was probably <laughs> supposed to read from his first books, like, or the books I was interested in, like, five, six, maybe even, like, ten years ago, and you were like, nah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and so, we were talking about going beyond, you know, canceling. I used this book as a... Uh, the doorstop for a while and then wow nice i think i finally just donated it to uh goodwill or something a literal doorstop hold my door yeah. open rather than <laughs> you don't deserve a space on this shelf do you think of that sometimes i think of that too in terms of arranging my books um sometimes i'll be arranging my books and it's like oh like this book like kind of like can't be next to like dostoevsky it's like they're like too like you know like that's insulting uh <laughs> it's like the lunch table or something yeah right exactly exactly um so my next book is a book that i an author that i have respect for again and i've read some of his books to great emotional effect but i just think that a hundred years of solitude is too much dude I just think it's too much. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you finished it, right? You've read it. Yeah, I, w I went down with yeah. that one too. Was it worth it? I mean, <laughs> that's all. That's all there, the no, answer you there, can give. No, there are there are cool parts in it. On my, yeah, there are definitely cool. Uh, the thing, cool Im imagery. The thing I that I say, think. Though, yeah, the, the family tree is confusing yeah. as shit. The thing that I just don't like about the whole legacy of the book is that it's obvious everyone who talks about this book everybody who talks about this book it's obvious that the names are really difficult especially you know it might be easier for a native like spanish speaker who's more you know the same thing with russian novels i've talked about russian names before on the podcast as well but this one is an extreme where i feel like at this point when there's just literally thousands of editions of this particular book 100 years of solitude it's a very well-known book it's supposed to be amazingly epic and everything why has no one published a book of it where the family tree is just in it 
Like every every edition I've ever seen, there's not a family tree just printed in the in the front cover, or like yeah. as part of it. And I think that that would help immensely. But none of the editions I've ever had has ever had one. Damn, I feel like mine does, but I also feel like the one I have is the one that everyone has. So it's probably the one that you have too. So I might be off. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it maybe it does have it, and I was still just not invested. But it's just one of those things where it's like. There's there's enjoying like a writer and the sentence structure that they have and and how amazing they are. And sometimes like certainly some pension books have really wacky names. And I don't really exactly know exactly which character he's talking about all the time. But I like his his style and the wackiness that comes out of it and everything. But Hundred Years of Solitude, I was just like reading it and I was like, I just can't keep this straight. Like, why am I supposed to be doing this? You know, and like and the same goes for like Faulkner. He's freaking crazy confusing with like a lot of his like names and characterizations and stuff. But for me, it just didn't click. I love Love in the Time of Cholera. I think it's a great book, but it also has like four characters, not like 500 that all have the same name. Yeah, they should. I don't know. <laughs> the family names. And I think that it's also there's something about the reputation of the novel itself that I think comes along with it where it's like, oh, like 100 Years of Solitude. Yes, I understood who, which character was which. And it's sort of like, well, why is that the hurdle? You know, why is that like the thing that I'm concentrating on constantly while I'm reading it? So sorry, Gabriel Mar- Garcia Marquez. Well, I just I understood it. I just say that. <laughs> Right, exactly. I, exactly. I, I definitely did. <laughs> Alright. Um, I only have one more actually. <laughs> okay. I have a few more, one. but I'll 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 lightning around them. Yeah, you're gonna hate this one. Uh <laughs> mentioned many times. Swan's Way. You know how many times I've started that damn book? God it damn. It has dude. to be a half dozen or more, like once once a year. You're hurting and, me. Uh, this is a different it's a different type of cancel, you know? There are a lot of books like that where I want to like them. I do enjoy reading up to the point that I get to. And right. it's for whatever reason, I'm either too intimidated. Uh, I lose track. You know, life gets in the way, whatever. Mm-hmm. I just have not finished that book. One one number one suggest like, first of all, I respect you. OK, first, that's fine. I'm pissed, but whatever. You've triggered me. <laughs> but no, I mean, I obviously a huge Proust devotee, but some things that one thing that I will suggest to people who are interested in trying to pursue Proust and all seven books in particular, I mean, like Swan's Way is its own thing. Like it's probably the most accessible and just like the first of the of the novels that you can just kind of read and then get the whole vibe. But what I would suggest to people is like what you said, like, um, there's a weird thing with Proust where I don't necessarily think you have to worry about stopping reading a whole other book in the middle and then starting again, because there's like this weird sort of rhythm to his writing that I think is somewhat unique to him where it's like, so far I've read Swan's way in about 75% of, um, within a budding group. Yeah, the next one within a budding grove or uh, the shadow of young girls in flower. And it's like, I'm not like I found this way where it's like, actually, it's okay to just stop like in the middle of nowhere and then like start again, which is just so counterintuitive to a normal reader. Like you want to read cover to cover and then go to the next book. Um, But I did that with Swan's Way several times. I would stop in the middle of the book, read a whole other book and then come back. Um, So I kind of had to teach myself that when I was reading Proust. 
Um, but yeah, totally, totally understand. Um, but yeah, I love it. Uh, so you, that's all your books. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to lightning round the rest of mine. Um, actually I don't really need to write lightning round it. What I need to do is give like a semi emotional speech. Um, (laughs) so two books that I have not finished reading, but that I actually liked a lot are, uh, something that I just, I'm, I'm in this new phase of life where I'm okay with bringing up in public forums and also just in general, because I'm being a little bit of an activist about it is that, uh, and Mark, you know, this about me that I previously have been diagnosed with an, with generalized anxiety disorder. So I do have a, a slight anxiety disorder that can co- like crop up and kind of make me anxious. I do have like medication for it, but to be honest, my, from what I know of the world of anxiety, mine is extremely minor, which I'm very fortunate for. But um, I have two books in my life that I someday intend to finish them. But uh, the two major panic attacks that I've ever had in my life were during reading. So obviously everyone listening to the podcast would know that if we've recorded at this point up to 35 hours of talking about books that I'm not going to stop reading ever. But both panic attacks that I've had, major ones in my life, were reading these two different books. The first one is The Interestings by Meg Wolitzer. I was reading a passage about people sharing needles in New York in the the 80s and 90s, and I uh, almost fainted on a subway train. And the next book that I was reading, I fully fainted when I was reading Tom Robbins' semi-autobiographical Tibetan Peach Pie. Uh, he there's a scene where he talks about getting a major burn on his back when he was a child and it was so it was just like something that happens with anxiety is that a particularly vulnerable thought just burrows deep into your brain and it starts to make a hundred percent sense and when i was reading tibetan peach pie i flat out fainted in the street which is kind of fucked up but uh so basically i'm putting this out there to say that um I haven't fully read these books and these are books that kind of sit on my shelf and remind me of a time where it's like, you know, I see the interestings now. I see the spine of the book. Freaking great book, by the way. I think it's been adapted into like an Amazon series or something like that. But Meg Wolitzer is just like an absolutely amazing author. And these are two books that I kind of see on my shelf and realize that one day I will complete them. But they are also sort of... um, mountains to climb to see if Mm -hmm. like when i reread those scenes one day i'll be able to handle them um but it's an interesting probably coincidence that uh i the major panic attacks that i've had in my life were also when i was reading maybe it's not a coincidence because for this podcast we basically have to read 24 7 so that's just life (laughs) um but yeah these are two books that i would say you know everyone has their own different reasons for not finishing a book um you know some of them are filled with rage like me and ayn rand and atlas shrugged or 100 years of solitude but i also have not finished those two books because they were they represent periods of extreme intense emotion in my life and kind of like times when things were a little bit messed up for me so if you if someone if you have books like that in your life um just know that you're that you're not alone and that uh you know it doesn't have to haunt you it doesn't have to like sit on your shelf and haunt you Uh, to me i'm actually kind of looking forward to i think one day i'll just go back and read these books and nothing will happen so yeah uh, onward and upward 
Okay, on that uh, slightly depressing note, I'm going to switch gears into a series of books and an author that I really love. And every time I read him, I've never fainted while reading John Lacari, the famous spy novelist, which I'm going to cover today. Um, but he is someone who I think gives me comfort, even though his books are sort of steeped in paranoia. Have you ever read John Lacar? Lacare? Lacare? No, uh... Are you covering uh, Tinker Tailor? No, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is probably one of his most famous novels, but the one that I'm covering today is The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, which um, sort of launched his career. I think in the scheme of things, actually, going back and researching, like I always thought Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was his biggest novel, not only because it's like one of the best titles ever, but also because it's it's something that I think is more recently in the media. Like there was a recent movie adaptation, right? Or like a series adaptation or something. I just think that maybe here, like now in 2019, people know Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, maybe a little bit more than they know The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. But The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, I think ultimately in terms of history is like a career defining novel for his, from him. And it actually happens to be his third book. So he wrote two novels before uh, Tinker Taylor. I mean, <laughs> see, I'm already falling into <laughs> saying Tinker <laughs> Taylor. Um, he wrote two novels before The Spy that came in from the cold, but this was the one that kind of exploded on the scene and made everyone be like, whoa, like this guy like is someone to look out for. Um, okay. There's I some really gone too far into like spy, the spy genre. Like, yeah, I, me neither. I, I've never read any. Uh, I remember our um, our high school English teacher. I remember you asking him what his favorite book ever was. And he right. was like, you know, Ian Fleming, you know, right. the whole James Bond right. series was incredible. And I haven't, I haven't touched that either, but yeah. So someday in some ways, I think that if someone's reading, uh, writing spy novels like Le Carre did, and I think I always wanted to call him John Le Carre, but I'll talk to you in a little bit about how he was on one of those BBC world book clubs and they said Le Carre, which you know, kind of shattered my, pronunciation dreams but um <laughs> i think in some ways if you're a spy person then people are you're either going to be a reaction to or people are going to ask you about james bond so like ian fleming the james bond series obviously becomes one of the highest grossing movie franchises of all time um and it's just so pervasive in the world of spying and uh le carry is actually quoted as saying you know like he's you know it would be this way basically but he's like not the biggest james bond fan he thinks that bond is like in some ways sort of like an international gangster whereas like a spy in his estimation and by the way it's a professional estimation because look uh le Carre was um he was in mi5 and mi6 the intelligence service, the British intelligence services. And when he writes the spy who came in from the cold, and I think it came out in 1963. Yep. So he had published two books under his pseudonym, John le Carre. His real name is David John Moore Cornwell, very British name. Um, so he, 
he publishes under a pseudonym that his employers in MI5 and MI6 know about. They clear him for being able to publish under this fictional name. And when he writes The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, it's basically a successful as like a, a successful enough novel that he just says, okay, I'm not going to be in intelligence services anymore. I'm just going to be a full-time novelist, which that's pretty fascinating, right? Like he was literally, like, I don't know if you could call him a literal spy because some of his... Um, some of his dealings in MI5 and MI6 seem to be sort of like administrative. And he went from being a language expert in various schools and, um, you know, he knew a few languages and stuff like that. But he was involved like he knew about stuff where this was all at the time of the Cold War and like East West Germany and stuff like that. And the spy who came in from the cold also has to do with the the Berlin Wall and East and West Germany and stuff. But yeah, when was he was. Published? 1963 okay. but he was literally somebody who like one of his first jobs with mi5 was to like when people would cross the border from east to west he spoke german and would like interpret them and then he would also he had like a job like spying on far left groups for information about soviet agents and stuff like that so like he wasn't James Bond, but he also knew that James Bond was like sort of bullshit because his novels are basically the answer to James Bond, which is like, like, okay, so the main character in um, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is this guy, Alec Liamus, Lemus. He's a British agent, and here's from Wikipedia. He's being sent to East Germany as a faux defector to sow disinformation about a powerful East German intelligence officer. So, um... The basic plot of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is, like, basically there's, like, a term within the spy community of, like, when you're in the cold or when you're out of the cold or something like that. And in this book, it kind of steeps into being a metaphor for also uh, Lemus's love life. Um, but the basic kind of plot of the novel is, okay, you're going to go into East Europe. Basically, he willfully gets fired from his job. So the the beginning of the novel is kind of interesting. He, like... Basically, he's going to like retire from his job or whatever. He's going to get fired. But he basically does this thing where he assaults a grocery, a grocery, grocery clerk and basically gets fired in disgrace so that the entire department will think that he's just like an out of control drunk who got fired, you know. Mm-hmm. And but that's all part of the um, his assignment that basically he's going to infiltrate this East German uh you know intelligence operation and of course there's all like double and triple and quadruple crossing where he finds out (laughs) that eventually like the guy that he was supposed to be you know the guy that he is supposed to be taking down he's actually an asset to take down a guy who's also trying to take him down so like it's basically like all these guys with all these crazy names like trying to figure shit out about each other. But the way that LeCarrie writes is not like, oh, James Bond with a gun and like track him down and run after him and like blah, blah. It's all psychological and internal and kind of like figuring out the right thing to say and what to do the right thing at the right time. Which is really interesting. Like it becomes kind of more if James Bond is like what you read when you're a teenager, like addicted to pulp and like action and stuff like that, that I feel like LeCarrie is like who you what you read when you like think about how like this stuff is probably more a function of the mind than it is of the physical. So it's basically like all of these sort of like incredibly intelligent, but also spies his like a thread through all of LeCarrie's work is that the the secret of democracy is that it's 
moral degradation is like the real operation behind everything. So like, you know, this guy, Alec Lemus is an agent of the West, but to fully infiltrate the enemy, which is the supposed enemy of democracy in Eastern Germany, he has to sort of like, you have to become what you supposedly despise, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's all like these double crossings. He falls in love with a girl, obviously. That's him coming in from the cold of basically like, he reveals his identity to somebody who, when he is in the throes of passion, and uh, obviously that probably doesn't play out too well for the both of them if you choose love over profession. Uh, You get a... um, this book has a visit from LaCarrie's most famous uh, spy, George Smiley, is like this guy who is throughout all... He's not the main character of the spy who came in from the cold, but he does have a few scenes in it, and he's integral to the plot. And George Smiley is kind of um, who LaCarrie has said multiple times is like sort of the ultimate spy in the sense that he's just sort of like a dumpy Englishman who's extremely intelligent but easy to forget. He's sort of like a moral blank that is basically just comes in and out of his novels. And sometimes he's the main character, but it's basically like his entire life is just like his wife left him. And he's like morally blank for the idea that all he has to do is serve what they call the circus, which is like the main kind of like what is the uh, like, you know how James Bond has M or whatever? Yeah. So in LeCarrie's world, which I think he's using some more um, real world terminology, having been a spy in the past, the main control within the British government is called the circus and the person at the head of the circus is called control. So control being like M is like where you get your orders from and stuff like that. Um, But I just think overall, uh, my enjoyment of LeCarrie's novels is one first of all I got the opportunity to read them while I was literally in London which is like a lot of the drama like especially in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy happens around London so it was so fun to read it when I was there because it would be like oh they're going to Pershing Square and I would be like I'm in Pershing Square like you know like oh like track down the spy they're having a meeting you know in you know Greenwich and I'm like I'm in Greenwich so like it was drive a do you drive a Mini Cooper no no Mini Coopers um (laughs) No, there's like that. There's not stuff like that. Is like the James Bond type stuff. The gadgetry, <laughs> the gadgetry in the cars and stuff like that. What LeCarrie is really talking about is like okay, like these two guys get together and or you know multiple guys are basically trying to bullshit each other, and it's all in the service. Like every time you read a LeCarrie novel, it's all about like oh, like spying is like bullshit that doesn't matter. Like everything is always like. It's just saber rattling of like politics and stuff like that. And how can we outsmart each other? But then people just end up dying and it's like completely useless. And you're just like, fuck, man, like, why do we do these things? And it's <laughs> okay. probably closer to the truth. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's that's very far removed from any other, you know, spy. Yeah, he's very psychological. It's very it's and, not and spy that's, kids. It's not like no, spy kids. no, no spy. Damn. No, nothing like that. Um, <laughs> and uh, he. You know, he goes, I mean, obviously a lot of people, he's written a ton of novels, but a lot of them have been very famously adapted. Like The Constant Gardener is a John le Carre mm-hmm. book. Uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, has like many adaptations. Um, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, he's he did do an episode of the BBC World Book Club, which is really cool. You get to hear him read some things from some of the George Smiley novels in his own voice, which is like totally awesome. Um 
But he said some interesting thing on that BBC World Book Club that I would like to kind of highlight as one, like some of my last few things here. Another really cool detail that I definitely want to look into, um, some of his personal past is very interesting. You know, he was like highly educated, gone to like a few like private colleges. He obviously ends up going to Oxford to study English and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then gets kind of contracted into working for the government and intelligence services because he's such a language expert. Um, but another cool thing that like, you know, someone who he said inspired um, the character of George Smiley is he knew someone in his life. And are you ready for this extremely English name? John le Carey, one of his like teachers was John Michael Ward Bingham, the seventh Baron of Clan Morris. And uh, he was also a former MI5 spy and an English novelist who published 17 thrillers, detective novels, and spy novels. So it's almost like a tradition here. Like, he's not the first. You know what I mean? Like, in 1952, this other guy published the thing, uh, you know, like, spy novels and stuff. So that's almost like an interesting little thing. I'd like to go maybe one step deeper and read one of his books to see kind of what it was about, because I'm sure it's not anywhere close to a to a James Bond type of thing. It's probably more in the tradition of Le Carre. Um, But he said some interesting stuff in that BBC World Book Club, which I'll wrap up with. And, uh, you know, he did, he wrote, he said something interesting where he was saying, you know, he's lived the life of a spy um, or at least gotten a window into the world of being a spy. And then he, he said something interesting where he was like, basically a writer is a spy in the sense that they don't stop working. Like a writer is basically these tools of observation that a writer has is that they move through the world and want to give an alternate observation that will be relatable to everyone, but kind of surfaces something maybe underneath the surface. So he compared that to being a spy is basically all the people that he writes about. It's like, they're not off work, you know, they're kind of like, yeah, they can't unlearn the game yeah. theory and all that. Right? Yeah. So basically it's like, you know, unearthing Mind these, everything. these, you know, observing and looking at everything, the writer of the life of a writer and the life of a spy maybe aren't too dissimilar. Uh, it's kind of interesting how he got into, you know, working for spy networks and stuff like that. Some of his personal history is that his father was, he wasn't super close to his father, but his, his mother left the family when he was like really young like when he was five years old his mom like skipped town and his father was in and out of his life but his father was also um like a crime guy like his there's these famous british um gangsters named the cray twins ronald and reginald cray and his father was like an associate of theirs and they and think of like basically like british mafia where yeah. he says, where LeCarrie says later in life, you know, he was like, when I was young, like I met like straight up murderers and gangsters and stuff like that. Like my dad was like a bad dude. So there's like this sort of intelligent, educated, but also like mixed with like a weird underworld. So he understands that from a certain perspective. And then also this history of, you know, working for British intelligence. So, you know, he was the one who was supposed to write these novels for sure. And he also mentioned a little, uh, Something that he mentioned on the BBC World Book Club that I want to bring up as one of the last things I say is um, there was an interesting little nugget in there where he talked about – they were talking about George Smiley, his famous uh, morally blank and kind of very forgettable character. And he quoted something from Flaubert who who wrote Madame Bovary. So this is like sort of an Easter egg for people who have read the Madame Bovary – listened to the Madame Bovary episode – 
is um, Flaubert once said that he never wanted an illustration of Emma Bovary on any of the covers of his books, which of course we violated at this point. But he <laughs> said that he never wanted a photo, like an, uh, an illustration or a photographic impression of her so that people, so she would be able to exist in readers' minds only as what they perceive, you know? Yeah. Um, which is sort of interesting, like trying not to give that impression, almost the opposite of what I enjoy, like movie casting and stuff like that. So he said the same of George Smiley, even though Smiley has been played by the likes of Gary Oldman and a bunch of other people. Um, he basically said, you know, he's supposed to be somebody who you can only perceive of as, uh, you know, that blank space in your mind of what a dumpy English spy would be like. Um <laughs> So yeah, that's that's my book report. I don't have a one star review, and because uh, I'm unprepared, so there are no <laughs> one star reviews. And uh, I'll, I'll hand it over to Mark. All right. So this week, I actually have a uh, two for one. You know, buy one get one. Uh, there's one book, Ooh. one book that I just read uh, that was very short, and another from the same author that I read a while back. You know. So the one I read was, I, I didn't want to uh, cheat our listeners out by reading something so short and just having a uh, short thing on it. So I kind of expanded it a little bit. Okay. So this is, uh, this is a name that we brought up before, you know, very famous in science fiction and other genres. Very, very long career. She actually just died last year. So I'm talking about uh, Ursula, Ursula K. Le Guin. Nice. So the association with that name for a lot of people is, uh, what is it? Earthsea? Yeah, you know, the Wizard Earthsea, of Earthsea. Earthsea. Yeah. You know, read the Earthsea series, but I haven't gotten to those yet. And okay. I will at some point. It just hasn't happened. Uh, you know, the thing is, I don't think I've ever actually come across them at a used bookstore. And I've looked for a long time. And maybe that's just tells you how good they really are because no one's donating <laughs> no one's reselling their earth seas. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you gotta get them new and uh so anyways this week i read the extremely short novel very far away from anywhere else this is from 1976 but i also want to talk about my personal introduction to Le Guin, which was 1969's nebula and hugo award winner the left hand of darkness wow i've never even heard of this so uh, yeah, Le Guin, you know, she was an American author, a West Coaster, you know, born in California, lived in Portland, Oregon for her life. She won eight Hugo Awards and six Nebulas throughout her almost 60 year career, you know, super prolific. She wrote over 20 novels, 100 short stories, poetry, dozen or so children's books, nonfiction, screenplays, essays, speeches. Uh, something I had not heard of before. Do you know what a chat book is? You heard of a chat no. book? No. Uh, so I looked it up. The first result on Google shows, <laughs> shows the following. A chat book is a small collection of poetry, generally no more than 40 pages, that often centers on a specific theme, such as exotic foods or wild animals or Justin Bieber. It's typically saddle-stitched like a pamphlet or magazine and is a format well-suited to smaller print runs. Hmm, Okay. Yeah, learned something new. Yeah, look Anyways, out for those chat books, people. Yeah, <laughs> that's not what I would have guessed. I'm not, I'm not even sure what I would have guessed. Um, 
So, you know, Le Guin, her father was an anthropologist and that seemed to, you know, influence her writing a lot. She had a, a lot of life experience and, you know, the topics that she tackled eventually in her writing career, just a lot of speculative fiction, you know, some, a lot of cultural exploration, uh, social science fiction, you know, a lot of themes like gender and sexuality and social structures and morality and, you know, she ran the gamut and all sorts of stuff. And so the book I read this week, very far away from anywhere else, is only 85 pages long. Wow. And it was, you know, it was so different from what I was expecting from a Le Guin novel. And, you know, assumptions are bad. Have you ever, you know, <laughs> assumed what you're what you're in for just on the cover and on oh, the yeah. author's reputation? Yeah, absolutely. That's like, I think I mentioned before on the podcast, but there is a Proust quote about, like, he basically kind of succinctly in some way much more articulate than me basically said like every you you think you know what you're getting into with a classic novel and then you read it and it's like oh that's why it's a classic because like you had no idea yeah yeah reputation precedes it always mm -hmm. something that big so my assumption for this book is that i was in for some sort of sci-fi experience you know which was a very bad assumption <laughs> this book very far away from anywhere else. It's a short novel about, it's about high school. It's about high school love and coming of age kind of decisions. And it's basically like a, a young man still in school. You know, he's on a, he's on a different page than his peers. He befriends a strong-willed young woman, you know, who can, he can be comfortable with and more himself. But, you know, his ignorance and his youth and hormones and feelings and everything mess, mess things up, you know, and that's natural, natural path. You know, there are no, there are no ray guns or alien cultures here, except maybe, <laughs> except maybe like in the perceptions of how adolescent, you know, boys and girls view each other. It's classified as young adult, I found out after the fact, but I think it's, you know, good for anyone just because the themes are, are relevant, you know, thinking you have it all figured out, setting priorities in your life, embarrassing feelings, you know, the stuff you can't escape it you can't escape for good at any age. And that's mm. kind of what Le Guin sort of sets you up with. Like the book opens with the following. It's kind of like almost like a diary sort of narrative. If you'd like a story about how I won my basketball letter and achieved fame, love, and fortune, don't read this. I don't know what I achieved in the six months I'm going to tell you about. I achieved something, all right. But I think it may take me the rest of my life to find out what. Hmm. And... Yeah, so I'd say it's this is a very, very relatable book. Uh, it would definitely be a good book for, like, uh, you know, high school reading, I think. Right. be a good book to assign. Like, it deals a lot with expectations versus reality quite well. And so, yeah, the, the, I don't... This was one I felt like I couldn't dive in too much. So mm. I just wanted to give it this quick one. And uh, so I got a quick one-star review before I move on to the next book. <laughs> oh, nice. So I could actually only find a two-star review for this one. There were one-star reviews, but they didn't have any, you know, they didn't bother to write anything. They just, you know, right. a couple dozen people hit one star and moved on. But we got a two-star review here from Scott. He says, great as a sleep aid. Yeah. A, <laughs> and this is cool. Reading a book report I did in grade school about this book. Dear God, I just read the sample to refresh my memory. 
and I can feel my brain falling asleep as it slouches inside my skull. It's like a bad European documentary. Useless, unconnected details and slow as hell. If you like sleep, get this book. I might buy it for that reason, even though I give it one star. Just not true you gave it two. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I wonder what European documentary he saw that is cemented in his brain that European <laughs> documentaries have no, <laughs> no purpose. It's the European documentary. Nice. I thought it was cool because he talked. He referenced the book report. Exactly. That's what we do here. Okay. So on to the left hand of darkness. This one's from 1969. This one's a full novel, you know, 300 pages. Uh, I read it a few years ago. I wanted to touch on it briefly. You know, I split split my time here. So I found out. There's another one I found out after the fact that it is not what I thought it was. It's part of a series, apparently, the something called the Hainish Hainish cycle. But it can be read as a standalone work, so I, I wasn't really fucking up that bad. And uh, I guess what ties this, you know, Hainish universe together is that it explores, you know, the themes of gender and sexuality on like a fictional planet that doesn't have fixed genders. Mm -hmm. So this is a really groundbreaking thing in science fiction. Wow! Yeah, that sounds kind of fascinating. And first of all, really cool cover art for this one. You should look up the Left Hand of Darkness right now. And um, okay because like 60s and 70s sci-fi art is its own sort of thing right it is you know before they had like computer aid with like animation and you know illustration right, so and you're stuff. talking about this like icicle thing that has two faces yeah and if you look really yeah. closely on this on the on the bottom you see how big it is because there's like a little little right. person standing at the base of it interesting so this like this sounds like a very kind of like 2019 looking back like gender politics kind of book in a way yeah absolutely like it's gonna be uh so like i said i didn't read this one again this week i'm kind of trying to remember from mm -hmm. when i read a few years back but uh to kind of summarize it basically we're thrown into this reality where humans are exploring space and the main character is a human man named jen lee who is sent to the planet Gethin to try and persuade them to join basically their version of the, the galaxy-wide UN mm -hmm. so they can you know expand trade, exchange technology, information, all sorts of stuff like that. Which, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, sounds a lot like a big inspiration for uh, the video game series Mass Effect. Like, it kind of sounds yeah. exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. There's a few kind of, like, examples of... Um... You know, the famous movie, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, is like a mm -hmm. little bit about that. It's like aliens come to Earth and they're basically testing us to see if we can like be smart enough to be in the inter intergalactic like federation, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, someone will have to figure out who came up with the idea first. Uh, yeah. This is from 1969. Um so, so generally, you know, this human sort of uh, diplomat or whatever, he's basically meeting with different layers of the, uh, so the planet's Gethin, so they're the Gethinian. He's meeting with different layers of the Gethinian government, and he's exploring the planet at the same time. And so this plot works pretty well within the, like, 300 pages or so, but what makes the book good, what makes the book unique, is the character and the world building that Le Guin does. Basically, you know, the Gathenians, they don't have gender, but 
Genli, he's so conditioned to approaching his interactions with people like with that gender binary in place. And it no doubt, you know, changes the dynamic for him. Mm-hmm. And he really kind of struggles with understanding how to be this diplomatic figure when he's, you know, subconsciously or consciously identifying traits that he wants to label as masculine, masculine or feminine. And it definitely clouds his interactions. So like you said, it's super relevant to today, like with that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and yeah, it's a in- super interesting premise. Definitely a unique work in science fiction because it transcends the genre into like this sort of speculative fiction. It's, you know, anti-prejudice fiction, feminist fiction, many other potential labels. And uh, so touching on all that, I want to kind of read the end of the introduction to this book written by Le Guin. Okay. She kind of talks about that. And she has a cool, like her, when she is speaking as herself outside of books, like she's got this cool um, kind of narrative voice. Here we go. This book is not about, I'm, I'm jumping like to the end the end few paragraphs of it. This book is not about the future. Yes, it begins by announcing that it's set in the ecumenical year 1490-97. But surely you don't believe that. Yes, indeed the people in it are androgynous, but that doesn't mean that I'm predicting that in a millennium or so we will all be androgynous or announcing that I think we damned well ought to be androgynous. I'm merely observing in a peculiar, peculiar devious, and thought-experimental manner proper to science fiction that if you look at us at certain odd times of day in certain weathers we already are i am not predicting or prescribing i am describing i am describing certain aspects of psychological reality in the novelist's way which is by inventing elaborately circumstantial lies in reading a novel any novel we have to know perfectly well that the whole thing is nonsense and then while reading believe every word of it finally when we're done with it we may find if it's a good novel that we're a bit different from what we were before we read it, that we have been changed a little, as if by having met a new face across the street we never crossed before. But it's very hard to say just what we learned, how we were changed. The artist deals with what cannot be said in words. The artist whose medium is fiction does this in words. The novelist says in words what cannot be said in words. Words can be used thus paradoxically because they have along with a semiotic usage, a symbolic or metaphoric usage. They also have a sound, a fact the linguistic positivists take no interest in. A sentence or paragraph is like a chord or harmonic sequence in music. Its meaning may be more clearly understood by the attentive ear, even though it is read in silence, than by the attentive intellect. All fiction is metaphor. Science fiction is metaphor. What sets it apart from older forms of fiction seems to be its use of new metaphors, drawn from a certain great dominance of our contemporary life. Science, all the sciences and technology, and the relativistic and historic outlook among them. Space travel is one of those metaphors. So it is an alternative society, an alternative biology. The future is another. The future, in fiction, is a metaphor. A metaphor for what? If I could have said it non-metaphorically, I would not have written all these words. This novel, and generally would never have sat down at my desk and used up my ink and typewriter ribbon in informing me, and you, rather solemnly, that the truth is a matter of the imagination. Nice. 
Very cool. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, reading this short, you know, short story here and then kind of revisiting my reading of the left hand of darkness, like I got to read Earthsea. <laughs> I just got to do it. Uh, yeah, I, gotta, I, I mean, gotta... Earthsea is it almost sounds like it would be like a combination of these two books because it's like it's like YA fantasy in a way. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think it sounds like a little bit younger than The Left Hand of Darkness, but it, Earthsea is definitely just like sort of addicting, you know, definitely like okay. a great children's fantasy series. I didn't. Is it really classified in that way? I didn't know Earthsea was uh, was YA at all. I don't. I'm not sure about that. I don't know. You got to be careful with that YA distinction because I think it started to mean something kind of like closer to like the Harry Potter era, you know, where it's like, yeah, oh, like was that changed. was like things changed and then it became like a section in the bookstore. So then people started like kind of writing for that. Whereas I think Le Guin was sort of writing like a universally accessible fantasy yeah. thing. Yeah. I, w I wouldn't say Left Hand of Darkness is YA at all. Um, right. Definitely. But so, yeah. But yeah, got to check out Earthsea, pretty much. <laughs> so another one to look out for. And uh, so I got I got a one-star review for uh, Left Hand here. And it kind of goes along with the theme of our intro today, because a lot of people were saying that they did not finish. Nice. The people who gave it one star. That was the common theme. Uh, but I have a short and sweet review here from uh, user Monique. I resent this experience. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I resent this experience. <laughs> and there you go. That's perfect. <laughs> so thank, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, Twitter, at SBR the Podcast, and you can email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, send us anything. See you next time. <laughs> See ya. Uh...